Concrete is probably the material that human beings spend more time with than anything else, maybe besides wood. It's so much part of everybody's life that I think people walk over it every day and never give it a second thought. And it also is a material that has a big consequence for our planet and for our climate. Today on At Scale, we're giving concrete a lot of thought. I'm Audrey Choi, Chief Sustainability Officer at Morgan Stanley and CEO of the Institute for Sustainable Investing. While we may take it for granted, concrete deserves our attention. It's the foundation of the $10 trillion global construction industry. It's also one of the toughest materials on Earth from a sustainability perspective. Dr. Peter Fisk is very familiar with the pros and the cons of concrete. He's a planetary geologist and also a civil engineer, entrepreneur, and currently the executive director of the National Alliance for Water Innovation. Something like 33 billion tons of concrete is poured around the world every year. We build so many things with it, including our tallest structures, our strongest structures, our longest bridges. It's really remarkable material. But our reliance on concrete also makes it a very problematic material. Making cement, the key ingredient in concrete, releases about 8% of the world's greenhouse gases. And to put that in context, air travel is responsible for about 2%. Plus, making concrete accounts for almost a tenth of the world's industrial water usage. And by 2050, it's estimated that 75% of concrete production will happen in areas that will probably experience drought and water stress. On top of that, Concrete-heavy cities and towns have created urban heat problems and flooding and choked biodiverse habitats. But as we've seen throughout the season on At Scale, materials or objects that create big problems can also provide big opportunities to rethink values and shift our habits and systems towards sustainability. How can we make our built environment carbon negative and actually sequester carbon in everything we build rather than releasing it? We can design a world where we live in better balance. But before we find out how we do that, a little history lesson. Humans first started piling rocks together long ago. And if you've been uh, walking in Europe, you'll see these old walls, which are basically piles of stones. Long ago, people realized that if I just pile stones together, they're loose and they can tumble apart. But if I have something to stick those stones together, then they can remain upright. And that really is the origin of concrete. No one knows who invented concrete, but versions of it have been used by the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, and Syrians, and the builders of China's Great Wall. But before we get much further into this look back, we have to clarify a key point. Cement versus concrete. Some people use those words interchangeably, but concrete is the composite of cement and the stones and pieces that we put together to hold it together. So cement is the, is the glue, and concrete is the product that we stick together. And how was cement first discovered? I think probably somebody was goofing off at a fire, you know, bored, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's dark, and I'm just gonna, I got this white piece of limestone, I'm just gonna chuck it in the fire. And then they probably noticed with the hot part of the fire that the, that the limestone fell apart into a white powder. And what they did that night was something called calcining. They cooked the calcium carbonate, which is what limestone is. 
and they drove off the CO2, calcium carbonate, and turned it into calcium oxide. Calcium oxide is a material that is very, very reactive with water. In fact, when you put calcium oxide in with water, it wants to grow a whole bunch of new minerals. And those minerals are quite tough, and that's what, that's what cement is. So the best concrete is mostly rocks with enough cement in between the pieces to hold all those rocks together and, and hold up a skyscraper or hold up a bridge. Or one of the oldest buildings in the world still in use today, the ancient Roman Pantheon built in 125 AD. The Romans were the first civilization to use concrete on a large and very impressive scale. They made cement out of volcanic ash, a particularly strong formula. And that's a big factor in why the Pantheon and its glorious 142-foot concrete dome is still standing. But when the Roman Empire fell, its method of making cement faded away too. The most common cement in use today, Portland cement, using limestone and clay, was developed in the first half of the 19th century. It's not as durable or strong as the Roman formula, but you can use a lot less of it when you're building. And these days, we do a lot of building. The building industry pours an estimated 19,000 bathtubs of concrete every few seconds, enough to build a Three Gorges Dam every single day. Over the next 40 years, the world is expected to add 230 billion square meters in new buildings. That's like adding the equivalent of Paris to the planet every single week. And that concrete explosion comes with a cost. While the raw materials that go into concrete are relatively cheap, producing cement requires a lot of energy. Because what you're doing is you take a huge furnace and you cook that limestone and you drive off all the CO2. So there are two major problems with, with cement and concrete. One is it takes a lot of energy to heat up and make that raw ingredient. The second thing is you're driving off CO2 back into the atmosphere. And of course, a lot of limestone, Audrey, is the fossil remains of shells and coral reefs you know, marine life that was trapping CO2 and, and sequestering it out of the atmosphere. And so now what we're doing is reversing millions of years of geology and liberating all the CO2 back in the atmosphere whenever we make concrete. That's very sobering when you think about it that way, Peter. I know, I know. And, and the thing is, with much of the issues and, and the sort of human activities that are driving climate change, of course, we didn't have the science and the understanding of, of CO2 and carbon balances, but we sure do now. I think that the kind of two major fatal flaws with conventional cement is one, you make a pound of CO2 for every pound of cement and the energy spent just heating all that stuff up. So it's just a very, very energy intensive and carbon intensive material as it's designed today. If the cement industry were a country, it would land in third place for CO2 emissions just behind China and the United States. And with no pending shortage of limestone or the other raw materials that go into concrete, there's nothing stopping us from producing more. And at this rate, if we keep making concrete the way we always have, we're making our climate problems much worse. And that's why Peter Fisk says it's time we rethink concrete. Imagine if we could develop concrete that was actually not liberating CO2, but actually pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, we'd have a major carbon negative reservoir. Every time we built a building, we'd be locking CO2 away. Every time we built a bridge, we'd be locking CO2 away. Peter is especially interested in an approach called biomimicry, looking to nature for solutions to concrete problems. 
nature has already solved a lot of engineering problems, from filtration to lightweight materials to chemical reactions to pigments, and that all you really need to do is find what is called a champion adapter, some species that really has nailed that problem, and go out to nature and then study that, that system. And when it comes to capturing CO2 in concrete, all you have to do is go down to the beach, Audrey, and look at the shells at your feet. Nature grows shells out of water and CO2. And so the same geochemical processes that grow a tough oyster shell can grow little nuggets, which we can then put into the concrete and actually lock CO2 away. Again, these are, these are very forefront technologies, in some cases, uh, early stage startups that are working in this space. And of course, in order to get to the global scale, the technologies that we shift to will have to be relatively inexpensive and universally applicable. Ed Sniffen is the deputy director in charge of highways on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. And he's seen one type of carbon capturing concrete in action. In 2019, his team tested a concrete product called Carbon Cure on a highway project. When we started putting it out there, contractor really loved it because the workability of the material is actually better than a normal concrete mix. The concrete with CO2 in it gave us more strength than we needed. The, the really cool thing about this is it, it was a zero cost add to our projects, which was perfect for us. There is no difference between the previous concrete and the carbon cure concrete, except that it's greener. Carbon cure developed technology that takes CO2, converts it into a mineral, and then injects it into concrete as it's being mixed. To be clear, making the cement is still energy intensive and still releases a lot of CO2. The technology captures about 5% of it back and stores it in the concrete. So it's still just a start, only part of the emissions reduction puzzle and an early step towards a concrete process that sequesters significantly more carbon. In Oahu, the carbon was captured from Hawaii gas and the concrete was mixed locally. Plus, the stronger, carbon-fortified concrete meant that Ed's team could use a lot less cement than they had expected. That allowed us to remove something that's equivalent to about 1,500 miles of driving on our system, just in that 150 cubic yards of concrete. The intent was to test it, send it out, see how it works, see if we use it on the next project. But because it worked out so well, we used that carbon cure for the rest of the ramps on the project. So in the end, they deployed Carbon Cure across 7,000 cubic yards of highway. The great thing is after this, not only did the concrete provider that initiated it push towards Carbon Cure for all of their mixes, the other two major manufacturers of concrete in Hawaii also converted their system. So we don't need to look for those multi-billion dollar solutions. We can start these little small steps so everybody can start being greener easier. That's very meaningful for Ed. Growing up on the North Shore of Oahu, He's seen how the island has been affected by climate change. We used to go out there and, and hang out on the beaches that extended 250, 300 feet from, from the roadway. Now, those beaches are eroded such that you have 5 to 10 feet of a beach between our road and the surf. You can see where the, where the ocean is now versus where it was before. You can see the inland water, how it's inundating more areas more often. You can see when regular storm events come through, and start inundating areas that just never got flooded before. Those reminders of, of what this climate is to us are there every day. 
So for us, we got to make sure that we start adjusting to it. We put out a lot of pavement every year. And if we can green our pavement, make sure we can capture some of the, the CO2 that's already been created by manufacturing and potentially avoid creating more CO2 because of the reductions in cement that we can use in our mixes, that's a win for everybody. Because local, state, and federal government agencies are the largest procurers of concrete, their policies can have a big impact on how quickly the concrete industry shifts. Ed's project happened because Honolulu, Hawaii, was the first municipality in the United States to pass a resolution encouraging the use of carbon sequestration in concrete. Shortly after, Austin, Texas, did the same. And later that year, the annual Conference of Mayors urged all of its members to adopt similar measures. Last year, New York state lawmakers passed a bill that will require the state to set an emission standard for concrete used in public works. Colorado followed suit, and other states, municipalities, and agencies are considering similar legislation. All of these initiatives will require new technologies or approaches to reducing the carbon footprint of concrete throughout its life cycle, from creation to demolition and possibly recreation, a measurement known as embodied carbon. The other place to innovate is in the aggregate, in the pebbles and the rocks that we're holding together with the cement. You can get what's called green concrete. And what green concrete is, is is mostly concrete where the aggregate material is recycled. In other words, uh, if you have to demolish a building, you have to take away truckload after truckload of broken up pieces of concrete. You can break that up into little pebbles and put it in new concrete. That can keep concrete out of landfills and save the cost and environmental impact of mining for new aggregates. But recycling concrete doesn't happen enough. Right now, construction and demolition waste, including concrete, makes up as much as 40% of the world's garbage. To see an even more sustainable way to approach recycling concrete, we go to the Netherlands to meet Nico Scouten, a green building consultant. I'm standing here uh, in the city center of Amsterdam, it's a very busy place within the city, next to a canal, next to a big park. People are biking to their work. Right across from me is the Dutch National Bank. This building from the National Bank has been built in the 1970s, so it's a relatively new building, only 50 years old. We're here with Nico because this bank building is being renovated. Part of it is being torn down, but not the way we usually imagine that happening. And what's really interesting about this building site is that instead of using a sledgehammer and a wrecking ball to break down the building, they're actually taking the building apart piece by piece to reuse the value of these materials at their highest purpose. Nico works with an organization called Metabolic. They're looking at ways to design buildings for disassembly, so materials like steel, bronze, and yes, concrete, can be salvaged and reused in their entirety instead of being destroyed and sent to landfill. What's also really interesting uh, to see is that of the tower that's still standing, they're also slowly peeling away the facade of the building, so really the exterior layer. Uh, and then we can start seeing the, the skeleton, like the construction of the building, to, to peek through. And what it really makes you realize is that buildings are constructed of different layers. Uh, and of course, all these layers have different lifespans. That process, meticulously dismantling a building layer by layer, so its parts can be reused, is called urban mining. And it's a more sustainable way of designing and reusing building materials, like concrete, which take enormous amounts of energy to produce in the first place. It differs, of course, per country, but on average, an average building in the Netherlands, for instance, only lasts between 50 and 75 years, 
which means that you've taken a material that can, uh, well, last centuries, and you only use it for 75 years and then destroy it again. And I think that's where the circular economy really comes in. Our current economy is linear. We use raw resources, make things, and then dispose of them when they're broken, obsolete, or we're tired of them, and then start over. In a circular economy, the whole life cycle of an object or product is taken into account, and everything is designed to be reused, creating little to no waste. If you uh, have a beam, for instance, a concrete beam, you can use it to build a construction, you can use it to really make a house. And by crushing it up and putting it underneath a road, you are destroying all this value, also financial value, which can no longer be reused and which means that you can then also need to make a new beam. Really talking again about this renewed production and CO2 impact. Nico talks about value a lot. But how do we put a value on a concrete slab, for example, extracted from that Dutch bank being dismantled piece by piece? Sabina Oberhuber has come up with a way to evaluate and catalog all those materials. What happens now if we make products, we use them for a given time and then we throw them away and they end up somewhere and nobody knows what is in the product exactly. So we came up with the phrase, waste actually is a material without identity. And in our common society, how do you really document your identity? This is with a passport. So we thought like human beings, also material should have the right to have a passport. And that's why we created material passports. Sabina is the co-founder of Turn2, a company that focuses on helping organizations, large corporations, and governments develop strategies for circularity. Sabina says material passports are a great circular solution because they tell the life story of a material. For example, a concrete slab. A materials passport tells you what it is made of, where its ingredients were mined, who made it, and how it was used. And all of this important information helps a designer or builder get a clearer picture of how they can reuse that same concrete block in a new project. We need to really reuse building construction material at a large scale. If you uh, use less virgin material for your building, if you use your building components longer than average, and if you are able to preserve that material in the future, then also your CO2 footprint will be substantially lower. Sabina's group wanted to take the concept of a materials passport to a whole new level. So they helped create an online platform called Medaster. It's a digital database that tells you everything about the materials used to construct a building, including the financial value of each, right down to the last bolt. The financial value will also depend on how easy it is to take this building apart, because if you would knock a building down, obviously the value of the material which you can retrieve will be much, much lower. And while it may seem faster and cheaper to just knock a building down and start over with new materials, there are real advantages to the circular approach. When you have a detailed inventory, you can reconstruct a building in the exact same way somewhere else, almost like building a Lego set. Sabina has seen the reuse and repurposing of building materials in this way actually cut down on the amount of time it takes to build a structure, sometimes by as much as five months. That's a huge cost savings in the long run. 
And that's before you even account for the savings in carbon emissions and the cost of the new materials. I do believe that also the uh, cost for raw uh, virgin material will go up. I think it's already happening. I think uh, what we see is that investors and banks are very, very interested because what they do see is that, in fact, traditional buildings in the future will be something like stranded assets. So I do believe that in 30 years' time, you really want to have buildings which you can take apart and reuse again. We have to think not only about one cycle, but about two, three, four, ten cycles, maybe even longer if we consider future generations wanting to use those materials as well. Since launching in the Netherlands in 2017, Medaster has registered more than 2,000 buildings, mostly in Europe. Sabina hopes this circular way of thinking will spread in the construction industry. So Winston Churchill once said, first we shape our buildings, afterwards they shape us. So the social dimension, the ecological dimension um, are completely linked to the built environment. And um, investors and designers should be really aware of their uh, societal responsibility they have by creating buildings. When we built our cities and urban areas out of concrete, and when we connected them with roads and highways, also made from concrete, we didn't think about how this would impact the ecosystem or public health or equity. And Peter Fisk says that needs to change. So much of our built environment we're unconscious about. So, you know, the the metaphor of the concrete jungle is, you know, is never said flatteringly, right? It, it, is, <laughs> it, is, it is disparagingly said because our design of our cities tends to be for these efficiencies of structures and efficiencies of transportation and not at all the necessities of human happiness and ecological balance. But there are ways to bring the balance back, from designing and cataloging buildings with a circular perspective to asking our civic and business leaders to create construction policies that lay the foundation for long-term ecological and human health. I'd say the number one thing is I'd like to see building codes where carbon-negative concrete is first of all specified and it may be municipal buildings required. I'd like to see an explicit financial mechanism whereby if you lock a ton of CO2 into the concrete that you make, you get some sort of reward, be that a carbon tax or be some rebate for concrete manufacturers. And if we really want solutions at scale, it's important that we, as consumers, care about concrete as well, from how it's sourced to how it's made and what happens to it when we rebuild. And we have to communicate that interest, that concern, to industry and policy leaders. If people knew that they could contribute to shifting our concrete economy to carbon negative concrete. I think a lot of people would be into it. You know, my, my family right now, we're, we're in, frankly, in desperate need of a, a new driveway. Our driveway is kind of breaking apart. And I am waiting for one of you entrepreneurs to make me carbon negative pavers. <laughs> I would buy carbon negative pavers. And that when we did our driveway, I knew that we locked up 25 tons of CO2. That would make me feel great. So, uh, so I'm hopeful that as individuals think about their built environment around them, they ask the question, how can I as an individual, in the choices I make, drive change in the economy, reward certain materials, reward certain innovations, and encourage us as a community to get to that carbon neutral energy balance place that we all know we need to get to? Yeah, you know, that's such a great point, Peter. And I think it, it is, it's so interesting because I think that peop- many people have come to the point where as consumers, 
they feel empowered in that way, right? You'll buy the shade-grown coffee, you'll choose the organic, this, that, or the other. And and somehow it, it's much harder to think about that for these for things like your driveway, right? But that's actually a massive purchase that is obviously much bigger monetary value, obviously, than your shade-grown cup of coffee. And it has decades of impact or more. When it comes to concrete, we need to take the very, very long view. This ubiquitous material has been with us for thousands of years and will be with us for thousands more. So how can we use it to build a more sustainable future? Maybe our concrete jungles will be carbon sinks. Maybe the building blocks and foundations of our urban environment will be made of repurposed or recycled concrete. There may even be a way for us to tap into nature's concrete-making abilities. But until this technology and innovation becomes the norm, there are still things we can do right now to tackle one of the toughest materials on Earth. From the choices we make as consumers to the ways we encourage our local governments to make more sustainable choices. Finding solutions to a difficult problem like concrete requires thinking beyond what we simply build today. Next time on At Scale, we shift from a man-made material and dig into the power of soil. I'm Audrey Choi, Chief Sustainability Officer at Morgan Stanley and CEO of the Institute for Sustainable Investing. Thanks for listening.